0: The Bible passage for this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-11, through 11, which you can find on page 1785 of the Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
1: Thanks, Sharon. You ready? I'm gonna dive right in. I have a bunch of things to say about this passage, even though it's the third sermon on this passage. Um, I really want to encourage you, as, as Gwen said before, if you haven't served in children's at some point, to do so. You don't actually have to be good at it in your own eyes. Your opinion about your skills is not relevant. Um, But instead, the need of kids. All you have to do is be able to be happy, which cheerfulness is a duty you owe everyone. So you can do it in the children's ministry. So um, we should receive the stewardship we've been given by the Lord of all these humans. Does that make sense? Um, All right, you ready to dive in? So one of the things I said last week was that there's every like generation or so, there are a number of pushes that come concentrated sort of all at once that come against some major part of the Christian faith, and that shipwreck the faith of some. And it's always a temptation, and we shouldn't really have an attitude of, um, oh, those weak people, right? Any of our faiths we need to recognize can come to shipwreck it at any time. We shouldn't have a sense of invincibility about us, though we should have a sense that um, of solidity about us. There are ways in which the Lord says we can, our faith can be built on a really solid foundation. But it's it's strange how like quickly like, a a very simple false notion can turn into a big thing in your mind. Um, When the Apostle Paul was in Athens, um, the way that the intellectual people um, in the Areopagus sought to humiliate him was not to call him stupid or to say that he didn't know anything, but they referred to him as a seed picker. That was the the literal Greek phrase of what, what it says, which means, like, He doesn't have a sense of, like, the expansiveness of real knowledge. He just, like, takes one thing here and one thing there and one thing there, like a chicken pecking their way around. And there's no real unity to his knowledge. And so he doesn't really know anything, because he doesn't know how these things all relate to each other, because he's not a philosopher, right? He just knows this one thing. Jesus the Christ rose from the dead, so that's supposed to change everything. But does it really change everything? Because if you know all this other stuff, then Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. Except that he did, and that seed grows into a big tree that puts shade over the whole philosophical garden. But it's really easy for our minds to seed pick on things, for someone to implant just a little notion, and for that to kind of like get under our skin. That happens to people's faith much more than they know. Very few of us, like, somebody like yells at us to stop being a Christian, and we're like, okay. For most of us, it's like something gets in there, and it just kind of irritates. You know what I mean? It just chafes at us, and it's just sore, and it makes it so we fixate on it. It's that missing tile syndrome. It's like that one thing. Like, why can't I sort this out? Why doesn't God, like, talk to me? Why—what's the deal with his hiddenness? Or why is this suffering okay? And what's—and like, we don't think, like, well, Solzhenitsyn was in a gulag and didn't lose his faith. We just think, there's no excuse for this. I'm suffering, right? We, and so as new waves of Attacking on the faith come. They'll call themselves different things. Called, this time it's called deconstruction, right? And, and they're always half true, right? That's the thing with seed picking. Like, there's always, like, there's always some truth in it, right? I said um, last time I was here, um, we all need to actually continually reconceptualize our faith. I gave a book to my daughter, my, uh, my second oldest, who's going to be a senior this year, called How to Stay Christian in College by Jay Bujashevsky. And she said, she said, Dad, I'm loving this book because in the second chapter, he explains Christianity. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, like, basically he says, you learn about Christianity, like, in second through fourth grade at church, and then nobody re-explains it to you as an adult. And then, so you take your, like, kid faith to college, and it doesn't hold up. And so he's like, let me just try to, like, adult re-explain this thing to you. And she's like, it was so helpful. I'm like, how could that not have happened? (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) <laughs> but for her, it's like, yeah, that's really important. And it is really important, but it turns out, like, yeah, you, you, you really need to do that when you're, like, 15, 16, 17, long before you go to college, right? But, but then you kind of have to do it again at, like, 25, and then, like, at 32, and then at 41. And that, you know what I mean? Like, you keep going through these different iterations of life, and if you're meaningfully open-minded, meaning, like, y- you do want to take it, the experiences that you're having and realize that as you move through life, the world kind of gets more complicated because you experience more things— and you're still, like, making them work together, right? And to do that means you have to keep reworking stuff out. One of the—and so right now, the, the deconstructive push that is really trying to deconstruct faith, not reconceptualize it in many ways, even though we need to reconceptualize again in each generation of our lives, is Christianity is bad for you. It's it's all psychological now, right? It's not historical, mathematical. It's psychological. Christianity's bad. Bad for you. So like ten years ago, it was just Christianity was bad. Remember that? Like, like what has Christianity ever done for the world, and it's bad historically, and it's just everybody's evil, and like there were crusades and stuff. Don't you remember? Like that argument, right? Which is not a very good argument. Now it's not just Christianity is bad. It's that if you're a Christian, you're bad. So there's the personal moral approbation, right? But it's that Christianity is bad for you. It's the psychological deconstruction, right? To be a Christian is to be psychologically broken, problematic, tyrannized, whatever, right? And one of the ways that this is argued—I heard one um, scholar say it this way who had been a Christian and had deconstructed his faith. He said, you know, people, christians say stuff like, I'm a soldier for the Lord, or I am like God's child, or I am whatever. He's like, you of those things, right? one of those classic, like, true and completely false statements, right? It's—what he's saying is, like, you could say, I'm a mother, right? And it's like, well, you're a mother, but you're more than a mother, right? Like, you're other things, too. You're, like, a woman, and you're a person, and you're a—right? And so what he's basically saying is, is you get too tied into this thing you call yourself and not think you're anything more than that. And so that's unhelpful, right? Which is a really pedantic argument, right? But, I mean, I have seen mothers— living as though they didn't think they were anything more than a mother, right? I've seen fathers do that, and I've seen Christians with a very narrow view of what Christianity is say, I'm a Christian, meaning I'm only these very narrow things, like these church meetings I go to, these Bible studies I teach, not seeing that God relates to all of creation, and everything that I embrace in human life is part of that, and therefore I am always a Christian in every situation. That is my identity, and it's very expansive, right? But one of the questions that people are pushing on us, and I think it's good to face these questions because it ends up making our faith a lot deeper, is does Christianity—Christian faith save the human self or cause us to deny the human self, right? One of the—one of the um, main fixture books of the early self-esteem movement, of which I was raised in, is this one by brandon Nathaniel Brandon called Honoring the Self, in which he—in one of the sections he talks about not really allowing ourselves to become ourselves, is he says, did somebody tell you when you were young you need to be humble? You need to be humble. As an example of a way people keep us from really embracing ourselves by saying we have to be less than we think we can be because we have to be humble. You see, that's another one of those things that's like, it's half true. You see, this is the whole seed picker thing. This is why these ideas get inside of us and they like irritate us and they undermine our faith because we know they're half right. You can see this in, um, there's a, there's a, um, There was a popular Facebook post not too long ago where this highly progressive— and progressive I mean the non-Christian sense, not the like, I believe in progressive political ideas of economics and social programs, okay? But um, pastor who basically was like, hey, listen, this is how you know toxic religion is sabotaging your life, right? And so he had this list of things like, begin with the premise that there's something hopelessly and incurably wrong with you, Two. Believe that your humanity is an offense needing forgiveness, an illness needing to be cured, a monster to be feared, and evil to repress. Okay, listen, I'm gonna aggressively critique this, but the reason I'm using it is not because I just looked for something easy to attack, but because this is like half right. There is toxic religion. That toxic religion of this kind tends to be in more conservative churches. Listen, liberal churches have their own kind of religious toxicity, right? There's lots of ways to fall off a roof. Well, there's at least two, depending on the architectural style, right? And And um, there's a lot that's right about this. You can go to church very much like ours, and this would be a hundred percent true. The problem is, is like, is that in real true biblical religious faith, it's like it's, it's dangerous because it's kind of true but completely false, right? The third is mistrust your innermost thoughts and feelings, right? He goes on. There's a, a number of these. Fourth is give your power and authority to determine what your beliefs, values, opinions, and goals are, views are to others, right? Fourth is fear, reject, condemn, and close yourself off to anyone or anything that isn't approved by the above others, okay? Like, you can, you can see, like, this is, is that toxic religion? Yes, that is. Absolutely. That's absolutely toxic religion. So why do I dislike this? Why shouldn't I be for it? I should be for that, right? Because people should get away from that kind of toxic religion. Okay, here's why I'm not for that, okay? Here's why I'm not for that. If you're going to drop a bomb, it is your responsibility to know what is within the blast radius of that bomb. That's your job. You drop the bomb, okay? That guy is an incompetent pastor. And here's why. Because real biblical Christian faith is within the psychological blast radius of that bomb. Right? People will read that, and knowing that it is to be hated— will think anytime they hear a preacher or the Bible say, there is something that is in some sense incurably wrong with us called the proud, they'll be like, that's toxic religion. And it will lead them to believe that anything that sounds like any of those, so if anybody in your church takes any kind of authority in your life, right, that's tyrannical, toxic, narcissistic leadership. And if anybody goes, hey listen, You can't just, like, go with whatever pops up in your psychology. No, you're telling me not to trust myself. And if you're like, look, that thing you did, that's selfish. It's a kind of a wickedness. You're like, no, what you're saying is that I can't be myself because there's something incurably wrong with me. And what it produces is not just a rejection of toxic religion, which we need. We need. It turns out, though, that true religion is within the blast radius of that, like— Uncareful explosion. Right? Like, I'm all for throwing a grenade on toxic religion, but I'm not for using a nuke. And it is yours and especially my responsibility to be careful because you know what's not in that blast radius? Self religion. Like, they're like, I'm just going to make it my religion, be whatever I want. It's good, like, whatever's psychologically affirming. I'm just going to take whatever I want from the world and create basically worldliness called religious faith, and say that that's psychologically affirming because it's a religion of freedom and wellness, and say that's the Lord's will, don't you see? Because then we'll all be happy, which is not biblical at all. It's not scripture at all, and it's not human at all. It's incredibly naive about the human condition, as the apostle says in this passage and in many others. If you have to be really careful about the half-rightedness of the person who wants to be the gadfly, the thing that we've longly believed, right? Because Jesus said it this way. In in a number of cases, in a number of translations, at least, when Jesus says the self, he means something very similar to what the Apostle Paul calls the flesh, which is the part of us that is broken and wrong, but isn't the whole of ourself or the thing we should identify with the heart of who we are as a self. Think about the way Jesus says this way. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Now that word life can also be translated self. Right? But whoever loses his life or his self for me will save it. What good is it for a man to give the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If I remember the Greek, it's soukse all the way through. Right? The self, the mind, the—right? You see the point? First of all, it's intentionally a paradox, which means Jesus doesn't think you can say, you have to trust yourself. You shouldn't trust yourself. Like, he's showing that we have a paradoxical relationship with ourselves. Why? Because we both have the divine image that we have to trust. We have to become a self. We have to believe in. We have to mature. We have to grow. We have to make choices. We should have a will. And we have the self in the negative sense, or the flesh, or indwelling sin, or the sinful nature, or that which is affected by pervasive depravity, which is the part of us, like— that you can't trust, that longs to be selfish, that wishes to be a God, that engages in self-worship and the diminution of others and idolatry and sin. And there's this paradoxical relationship where one has to die so that the other can live, but the, the one lives by submitting itself to a kind of death, but not the death of abuse. It's just, it's just not as simple as throw off all restraint. The Bible has a verse about. It feels great to throw off all restraint, and it precedes destruction. Right now, one of the things that, therefore, Christian faith teaches, and this particular passage teaches, about the formation of the self, that only Christian faith is a divine gift that fosters the full recreation of the human self, is that it comes through a very difficult painful, harrowing, terrifying process in which you will think you're going to lose yourself. Almost like a person being nailed to a cross and killed and thrown in a grave so as to be divinely raised from the dead. Right? The cross is a literal truth, a judicial act of justification, and the greatest metaphor in poetry in all of human existence at the same time. Now, In the book of Philippians, the way the apostle tries to help us see this is everything that he says about what's happening, he roots in the idea of joy, because what's the real fear of toxic religion? Is that you will lose yourself and you'll experience misery, right, In the loss of yourself. You'll be miserable all the time. And that's how people who have lived or grown up in toxic religion have felt, which is—this is an aside, but I think it's important. This is why, especially churches of historic biblical theology, because we have structures, we draw bad people. Do you understand that? In leadership. We'll draw some of the best people because they'll be responding to the actual biblical gospel. They'll be living in the life of the actual spirit that God has actually revealed, and that'll be a beautiful thing. And some of the people drawn to leadership in churches that are orthodox in their theology will be some of the best people. And the people who realize there's a lot of tools here to use to manipulate and step on the necks of other people. Which means we will also draw some of the worst people. Right? It's like a pretty girl dating. And so we have to be able to tell the difference. Which is why who we elect as elders is incredibly critical. And who we put on search committees is one of the most critical questions of our church's life. The people who can actually discern the difference between those people. Sometimes they look really similar. I I remember—okay, really quick story on this. When I came to high point, it was a six-month process, okay, first of all. Most narcissistic people won't do a six-month process. Um, but we got through all this thing. I did four days of 10 hours a day interviews. I get through all this stuff. Okay, I was exhausted. We are finally having ice cream at Fran and Shirley's house, and um, there's this guy, Archie McKinney. Does anybody remember Archie McKinney? Been here long enough? You gotta be here like 15 years to, like, okay. So Archie's there. He's got these big owl eyebrows. He's this old hematology professor. He's like a hundred—he's older than, like, Bill Taylor, okay? And— <laughs> And we're, like, we're, it was kind of like, hey, anybody got any last questions for Nick, right? And so people were like, yeah, you know, what are your hobbies? And do you have a pet? You know, because they'd asked all their serious questions in the 40 hours of questioning that had already happened. And then, and then um, Archie goes, I have a question. He looks at me and like, and he twists the out. Like, are you a narcissist? <laughs> so, he, so he asked me, it was just like, like glaring eyes behind his like glasses, you know. It's like, are you a narcissist? Yeah, and he asked him, are you a narcissist? And I was like, and before I could answer, this other guy who's in church, he's like, Archie, come on! (laughs) But but honestly, I was like, you know what? That is the question. Because I'm relatively talented. I I act self-assured. I have all the Bible stuff. I can do all the things. I like, I'm going to gather people around me. And in five or six years, I'm going to have a lot of power at the church, at least within this little community. And like, that's the question. Now, I'm not sure that's the best way to find out. That's the question, okay. Now, in this book, the apostle's like, look, my partnership with you is, is an issue of joy. That's why I pray for you. It's an issue of joy. And then he says, I want your, your love to grow. And then he says, listen, I know I'm in jail, and, but here's the thing. Even though I can't preach the gospel, and I'm in prison, they might kill me. The gospel is going to be fine without me. It's getting preached. It will advance. It will grow. The gospel is going to be glorified, and I'm going to be glorified. Whether they kill me or they let me out, I'm going to be glorified. And because of this, I rejoice, and you should rejoice. And then he gets to chapter two. He says, listen— My life is filled with this joy, but my joy could be more complete if you embraced godliness. If you, in your relationship with God, in your encouragement in him, you, by loving each other and taking joy in it and doing it beautifully, that is the environment in which my joy could be filled up and overflowing. Right? Which is a really interesting statement. What he's saying—and that's true for me. Listen, I'm one of your pastors— outside of my family life, the greatest way I could be overflowingly happy is to see you loving each other, serving God in humility, and in concord with each other. As I walk through the halls, as I see you, as I talk to you, as I watch your lives, as I see you having marriages and kids and families and friendships and roommate relationships, and as you have small groups together, and as I see you, living in the joy of Christ, encouraged by belonging to him, and actually living closely with each other in concord, having humility in yourself and towards each other, and really serving each other in love, like that you actually look like Jesus in how you live. That is the greatest joy I can possibly experience, knowing that I'm not running my race in vain. Vanity being only that I might only have the resurrection from the dead and infinite and eternal riches with Christ himself which is the worst case scenario, but the better case scenario and the one that I can enjoy and would fill me with joy is to get to see that in your life. It's the greatest thing. But Paul's saying is that's true for everybody who ministers to anybody. That's true for every parent. That's even true for every good friendship. What would be the greatest thing in a friendship, right? Well, to love and be loved and to be actually known in a friendship. But if you really love your friend, to see your friend flourishing. Right? Love by definition, finds joy in the flourishing of another. Because what is love? It is the virtue of the full giving of yourself to the true good of the other. Everything that you pour out in love is for the true good of the other. So what's your greatest hope to happen? The true good of the other. And so if it happens, it's your greatest joy. And he's like, listen, you guys could make my joy complete by just doing what's best for you. By just living in Christ. If you grew in godliness and holiness and in love and the joy that comes with that, you will fill me with joy. Your joy is my joy right? And he says that that comes from what he talked about in verse 1, which we talked about last week, which I won't talk about now very much, which is, he starts to like, listen, if you actually know the risen Christ, meaning that you have put your trust in him, and you believe convictionally and in faith that he is with you, he said, what that produces you is the emotional reality where you really feel an encouragement from knowing that you're united with Christ, missing in a way you can't necessarily feel, but that is just as real as anything in your life that you can see with your own eyes. Any comfort because you know he loves you, com- being comforted in your failures or your difficulties or whatever, because you know you're loved by God, right? Or any fellowship with the Spirit that you know that the Spirit is literally with you and you're walking in his steps with him, that your will and his are united in a meaningful way, right? Or that it's, it's created an emotional life where you really have tenderness and compassion towards other people. He's like, if you live in that, if you would live that out, my joy would be complete. And he argues so will yours, which we'll get to in three to 17 weeks, depending on the pace here. Okay? (laughs) Which means, he says, the emotions of faith are this, that encouragement from union with Christ, comfort from his love, fellowship in walking with the Spirit, and like the deep emotions and mercies of compassion that are supposed to flow out of us as God's love works in us, rooted in Christ, they produce a life of joy, both for the person who believes them, but then also the person who's loving them and or loving them by ministering to them, which is the apostle, right? And then he basically argues this. He says joy in Christ can enliven a full-hearted, emotional Christian life with three golden virtues, right, which are concord, which is fellowship, humility, and service. I think it's good to have like a concrete idea, because remember, Paul says in chapter 1, I want your love to grow more and more— In what? In knowledge and depth of insight. No apostle in the Bible uses the word love, throwing it out there so that you and I can fill it with whatever meaning we want to. Because we'll always fill it with toxic religion or self-focused man-centered idolatry. Right? Because the easiest way to live up to a standard is to be able to fill it with your own content and make it mean whatever you want. Right? But he says, no, if you really, if your love is going to grow, it has to start with knowledge and depth of insight. You have to know what love is, what it actually looks like so that you can pursue it, because love is the hardest thing in the world. It's the, it's the the triumphing of all the virtues in your life. It's not the first one. It's not just a feeling, right? Okay, so let's move through these. The first is Concord. He says, which is this, um, Concord is a real likeness of heart and mind that makes for productive unity, shared course, and productive cooperation. It allows human beings to be with each other and to work together and to get something out of it. If you don't have concord, you don't have—you're not a family. You can't function. And it's certainly not any fun. There's no enjoyment. The book of Philippians, if you read it carefully, is full of enjoyment words. Joy, rejoice, happy, and and negatively, like he says, when I send this person to you, I'm doing it partly so I'll have less anxiety about him. Right? Now, he says it this way. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in mind. Now, I think for some people, they struggle with the idea of like-mindedness because that sounds repressive. It sounds like that toxic religion just, just thinly veiled over with a little religiosity. And it's important to recognize that what the apostle means here is actually not mirror-mindedness. We're like, we go out on like, use social media or consumer dynamics to find people who are exactly like us to be friends with, so that by liking them, we're really just liking ourselves. That's not what the apostle means, because in all of his epistles, it's, Ephesians is maybe the most stark, but in all the epistles he's basically like, you're going to be in a family of God with people completely different than you, and bearing with them is going to be a big part of that. So it's, it's not mirror-mindedness. You're not going to be around people who are just like you. Let I me mean, just look around, right? You, like, you have to love whoever's here. I mean, it's—in it's, it's the, the, that sense, the church is just like family, right? It's like you just don't get to pick them. In almost every other area of your life, you get to pick who you're around. There's some limits to that in your work and so on. But like, there's, there are some ways in which at you your work, you can get involved in trying to work around people that you want to like, or move to another job. But you're stuck, church-wise, just like you're stuck family-wise. Now, of course, you can say, well, I don't have to be stuck. Let's go to another church. hmm Yeah, you can do that. Yeah, churches can filter themselves out by personality types, usually surrounding the pastor. It, it leads to just really terrible churches, though. Because what happens is only, only the part of the glory of God that that pastor can reflect gets reflected in that church, because everybody's like him. So if, if like, he's like an academic-y kind of person who like, likes to study, get everything right, everybody in the church says, academic person has to get everything right, right? That's not a fun church, right? And then, or he's like, oh, he's like the really emotional, like raises his hands and closes his eyes, it's just like very spiritual, and everybody, everybody who's really emotive comes to that church, and everybody like feels good, but nobody can get anything done, or organize anything, or, you know what I mean? And so on. Right? We could multiply this a hundred times. The, pil- the political action church, the rituals and smells and bells church, the, you know, whatever. Right? It, it also doesn't mean closed-mindedness. Like-mindedness doesn't mean closed-mindedness. It doesn't mean like, okay, listen, I'm going to tell you the 1947 things we believe exactly like this, and you better believe them all. If you believe them all, then we can all get along, because we all know exactly what we're doing. That's not what it means. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that that the apostles just don't nail down, and Jesus says a lot of like kind of open statements that are real specific, very aggressive to you personally, but aren't like extremely definitive in exactly what they have to mean in every application. There's actually a wide breadth of application, right? And so it doesn't really mean closed-mindedness, and closed-mindedness is not a Christian virtue. That might be news to some, right? I'm gonna say open-mindedness isn't either, so just like relax, okay? But. But closed-mindedness isn't. Like, there is a sense in which you get your doctrine so straight that you're, you're, you're always in your head rationalizing things, and you're, you don't spend your life perceiving things, like, looking at what is right there outside of you. And so, like, you can, like, have somebody ask you a question about theology and not see that they're about to cry when they ask you, and you give them, like, a really good theological answer, right? And then they just leave, and they're, like, like, heartbroken, because like you weren't, you were rationalizing because you're in your like closed little mind, and you don't see the actual person there, and you don't connect to them at all. And you're like, I mean, you may, listen, you're right. You can't tell them what they want to hear all the time. In fact, a lot of times when people are hurting, you can't tell them what they want to hear. But there's a big difference between that and seeing them there and giving them an apt response, seasoned like good cooking that is prepared for them. Like, you're like one of those chefs with a little hat, who like has a little pan in the convection thing at at like, you know, the cruise ship. Like there's all the stuff in the buffets, but like you make it special right there. Like a believer who's really ministering and loving other people, that's what you are. You're not just dumping the like beef and broccoli into the thing that everybody can just get if they want to eat good, right? Like you're like, well, how would you like that? And You want some cheese in there? Because you're actually looking at the other person. In our marriages, in our parenting, in our counseling, and in our discipling, it's so easy to get closed-minded so that not be—not— it doesn't mean we don't know what we think. It means, like, we don't see who's there. And when, like, liberal people, like, or open-minded people say, that, I, that thing you do is ugly. I don't like it, and that's why. Like, you can understand where they're coming from, right? Like, one of the first things you got to realize—I'm a very, like— I don't know if you know this about me. But for most of my life, I dealt with the fact that most people found me pretty unlikable. Okay? Immediately at least, you know. Um, I, you know, I was, I was able to put my best foot backward. And so um, one of the things I had to deal with for a couple of decades at least was, what's the truth of what that person is saying? Like, I need to not internalize it. Like, I'm a terrible person. I can't do anything right. But like, what's right about what they're saying? Why do they feel that way about me? Right? And it's very easy when you're up here just cranking out while you're right to just miss the thing that's right there. Do you understand? Uh, it's one of the reasons why like preaching and counseling are so different. Like some, some people, I, I've, I've had people like talk to Aaron, my sister, be like, I don't know if I want to talk to Nick. He's, he's very aggressive. And Aaron's like, okay, look, they're to- counseling and preaching are totally different. Because when you're, you're sitting in the congregation, he can't do it just for you. Right? So you have to, like, kind of lay out the truth as best as you can. But, like, when you sit down with somebody, and they get to see you, and you get to talk and frame it, and they get to listen, it's a diff- totally different dynamic. Right? It's like spraying antibiotics at people, you know, versus, like, actually getting to do surgery. <laughs> but, but open-mindedness, listen, it's just as problematic. Right? Um, there's this, there's this, like, meme that people seem to like on the internet. That, like, you know, a mind is like a parachute. It works best to open. Yeah, but it also tends to open best when it was folded in an extremely meticulous way and tied up just properly before you pulled the thing. Okay? Those are both true at the same time. Right? You need a really closed-minded parachute before it opens up. And like in certain ways, knowing, having the mind of Christ and really knowing what you think about some core ideas actually allows you to operate more open-mindedly without creating a confused reality inside of yourself. Because a lot of things that Jesus teaches, you can, like, mediate them relative to all kinds of different ideas and realities. And if you're like, look, I just want to know what the truth is, because that's what Jesus cares about, you can have places where you feel like you have, are most certainly right, but then, like, you really can be open-minded to be like, well, what is the new evidence? And what was your experience? And how does that work? And I don't have to worry about that, right? And that allows for concord. So when, when the apostle says we have to be like-minded, that it's one of the most important results of really knowing Christ emotionally. It doesn't mean mirror-mindedness. It does not mean closed-mindedness, and it does not mean open-mindedness. So what does it mean? Okay, one of the weird things about this is like, um, I think the translation stinks. Because when, when I looked at this, okay, now that, now that Devin is on staff, I have to be like really tight with my like, you know, exegesis. Um, this is Mr. New Testament scholar, you know, like, which is great. Um, Okay, sorry. I'm digging in Devin, but I really really like him. And I think—I've had people come to me like, man, Devin, his sermons have really helped me. I I feel really blessed to have—like, when I'm not preaching, uh, I feel like Mike, Manohar, and Devin are—I mean, you guys, most churches don't have anything like that for their lead pastors. You understand? I hope you understand that. I mean, these guys, um, these guys are really great, and I'm just never going to preach again and just— Get, get a tan or something, you know what I mean? Um, anyway, uh, you know, you go through the, even the commentaries, and the commentaries don't say much about this because there's not a lot of academic argument about these words because they don't matter for, like, big academic arguments. That's what tends to go in the commentaries. But it just doesn't say any of these words in the Greek. Like, it doesn't say have one mind with the same love. The word one and same just aren't there, except for in the last phrase, one-mindedness. It just says this. It says be this-minded and have this love. Well, what is that? Right. This, this is a more literal translation. So that it should be what you mind—that is, are minded about, or discerning for, or, or judge in accordance with. And that says it is the love that you hold. And then just there's just an adjective there, harmoniousness, which means it's an apposition. That means that what the love you hold is harmoniousness. Those are an apposition, meaning they mean the same thing. It's a different word for the same thing, right? And that says your one-mindedness. They're all the same thing. Now, that means that what all this means is specifically related to the question of what is it. And it is verse one. If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, any comfort from his love, right? You see, if you have that it emotionally operating you because of your faith in Christ, the direct product in our relationship with other people is what you might call a like-mindedness, meaning the like-mindedness is the gospel itself. That Christ died for our sins and rose for our resurrections, that he's making us creatures of love, that he's working in us by his spirit, that he's making us one body. Those basic ideas of the gospel, which don't tell us everything about everything. It doesn't tell us the, the proper marginal tax rate. It just doesn't tell us those things, but it tells us a certain body of things, which is the core of Christian doctrine, and those things unite us, but they don't just unite us doctrinally. They unite us emotionally. Okay? Now that may not sound nice to some of you, but think about this. Um, Do you guys remember, you remember watching Anne of Green Gables? I have three daughters. I've watched it like 174 times. I still cry like four times every time. I don't know why. It feels good though. Whatever. So— there's this, there's this thing where this, like, this girl, she's like super flight of fancy. She's all about imagination, all that kind of stuff, which is like silly and cool at the same time, right? And she's, but she, what she wants is this bosom friend, right? What does she mean by bosom friend? It's a friend that, like, you just have this, like, emotional concord with. She gets you, and you get her, and you just love being with each other. It's so great. It's—I finally belong, you right? Like, that's, that's what it's supposed to feel like to be in the body of Christ with everyone. And it is an emotional operation. We are, in our feelings, through this shared union, in this comfort and love of Christ, positively disposed towards each other, in sympathy, that we want to be pleased by each other. There's this place in Screwtape Letters where the demon Screwtape is saying, humor is such a stupid thing with humans, because there's some— there's one humor where people say the dumbest thing, and people just laugh. And he's like, it's obviously not the joke. It's that they're all looking for a reason to laugh because they like each other. It's disgusting, <laughs> right? But like, I've seen this. Like, I get together with my brother, which is like, he lives in California. It's not very common. We just start talking, and before we know it, we're just yucking it up, laughing. You know, just, and, our, jo- and like, our kids are like, these are really dumb jokes. I mean, they're, they're bad. <laughs> like, they're, they're like, they're brainy, but stupid at the same time. Like, it's awful, right? But it's like, I haven't seen him in a year. It's easy to make me laugh. And it's easy for him to laugh with me because I I like him, right? And you see, that's how it's supposed to be with us. We're supposed to be favorably disposed in that way. It should, it's not supposed to be. We're supposed to have one mind. But this shared mind of knowing and loving and being comforted by Christ so that we're in an emotional place where we're just easy to be pleased and we, like, give each other our cheerfulness without it being dragged out of us and we don't have to coerce other people to empathize with us because they're already giving us a free sympathy because they care! Because there are bowels of compassion and tender mercies everywhere! Which is why, which is why friends, we, we will never be able to think our way only into a lively, loving powerful church, right. So one way to think about it is this. Um, he says, right, verse 1 and 2, like I just said, there's this, um, there are these frescoes in Siena, which I did not see when I was in Siena, and I'm still a little angry about this, um, th- though the wine was very inexpensive, um, the, in, inside what was the government building of the 14th century, there are frescoes on the wall painted by Lorenzo, something, something, something—Italian. And on one side of the hall is the allegory of bad government, and on the other side of the hall is the allegory of good government. And their frescoes. They're very complicated. There's lots of stuff in them. But one section of them is this section, which I don't know if you can see super well. But at the top is the angel sapientia, which is wisdom or discernment. And so wisdom and discernment comes from heaven. So for, for the, the sanities at that time, it, it comes from heaven, it's from God, it's related to his word, but it produces what is necessary for Lady Justice to punish iniquity and to be gracious towards the good. Right? But Lady Justice produces concordia, unity. That when the discernment of heaven causes us to act, give each other what is each other's due— and then to go beyond justice to mercy, so that in self-control and in brotherly kindness, we can get to love, it will produce more than just what justice can produce. It will produce an even richer concord, an ability of us to live together in unity and profusion and mutual enjoyment, so that we will make each other's joy complete. that's about as far as we can go today. And I I don't really regret that because sometimes people just need one thing to think about. The concord, the fellowship, the unity we're meant to have is rooted in this like-mindedness that is not what the world pursues. The world mostly pursues like-mindedness through closed-mindedness, mirror-mindedness, and open-mindedness. And most of the open-minded people are faking. I don't know if you realize this, but most of the open-minded people are faking. They're very closed-minded, but they believe against what the other closed-minded people think, and so they think they're open-minded, but they're not, right? Because open-mindedness is, like, pretty disorienting for a human being to do over a long period of time the way they mean it. But what the apostle is saying is is that there is a— there is a love— that we're meant to have, that's meant to grow, that's rooted in an increase of knowledge and wisdom. So it's not just love whatever you want to mean. It is the love of Christ. But it has to flow out of us through sapientia, right? That the wisdom of God, right? Love being fostered by real knowledge and understanding. But love, Right? Don't let the fact that the apostle modifies love with knowledge and understanding to think that love means knowledge and understanding. Love does not mean knowledge and understanding. Love does not mean the the capacity to linguistically dispense seemingly wise statements towards people who have needs, or in response to their emotional needs, right? Love must be in accord with knowledge, and wisdom or it is not Christian love. But love is love. And what the apostle's telling us is it flows from joy and comfort and unity and fellowship with the Spirit and all of the things that fill and overflow the heart into a romantic piety, and that that devotion is meant to be felt and expressed and known. And if it's not, we will produce either a toxic religiosity because of the conservative idolatry that will replace true religion, or we will produce a self-made worldliness-as-a-religion-liberalized version of faith that will be not the faith at all. We will be Pharisees or Sadducees. Or we'll leave it all together and just become Romans. You understand? And so as the worship team comes up and as we sing these songs, just focus this. How How do we respond to that? How do we really respond to that? I think for some of you it might be, that, that you need to get over this burr in your saddle that if you really believe in Christ wholeheartedly, he's not gonna, you're not going to find your true self, because you just have to be like Jesus, and that's not going to make you yourself, right? And like Lewis put it in Mere Christianity, Jesus is like salt. He brings out the true flavor of what's already there that he's already put there. To follow Christ truthfully, you will become yourself in a way you never could otherwise— There is a singular uniqueness to the promise of Christ. Yes, will you pass through death? Yes, you will. Will it be incredibly difficult? Yes. Will you, like, face death daily like the apostles, or have to take up your cross and follow him? Will it be very hard? Yes. Will it feel like you're losing yourself at points? Yes, it will. But will you in fact find your life, not just an eternal life, but find the real true self of redemption, humanity as it was meant to be, reflected through the particular gift that God has created in you? Yes. And what Christ promises and his apostles exhort is you can find it no other way. There are many good and true messages in the world of various things, but Christian faith in Christ and his apostles claims that there is a singular uniqueness to the redemption of the human self now and forever in Christ. And being united with him, and knowing him, and following him, and coming into the Bowels of emotion and tender mercies of relationship with his people in joy. And for some of you, you need, to, you need to give yourself to Christ so that you can become yourself. You need to, like it says in the following verses, where Christ emptied himself and ended up full of glory. And so you might need to believe in Jesus today, and you might need to pray that right now. You actually don't need my help. Now, I'm, I, like, lot of the pastors do it. The next pastor will probably give you a sample prayer, but I'm just telling you, It's probably because of the the bigotry here, right? Be yourself. Be yourself as you pray to Jesus to throw yourself on him. Be totally honest with him about your need from him. Be totally honest about what you really are, that you're a mixture of the divine image and the brokenness of sin, and and you don't know how to sort those out, and you need an image out in front of you of the one who is true humanity and true divinity. Like, be yourself and pray to him during these songs and do one of the great, most honest things the self can do. And ask the one who created you to tell you what you really are, and the one who died for you to redeem you into what you were meant to be. And stop believing the worldly nonsense that by rejecting your source, you can become the greatest river in the world. And then for some of us, we need to—you need to find your heart again. I just believe that there are many Christians who have lost their hearts in their faith. They don't—they're not happy in God. They don't believe that God smiles over them. They have internalized the self-hatred they got from their family or their culture or something else, and they have somehow put that face on the face of God, and they cannot scrub it off, and they don't really feel the comfort of his love. And God's claim as the truthful one is that he has redeemed all who believe. All who come to him, he never turns away. That he makes— Propitiation, which means makes happy toward again. Counts as innocent. Adopts to himself. Right? All of these are God pleading with us to accept his love. And doctrinal understanding of love is insufficient, not because you're not good enough insufficient, but because you need the joy that comes from knowing he loves you. You're neither too much nor not enough for the divine one that is everything and everywhere and doesn't need you to be anything he didn't create you to be. And you don't have to save the world. It's not even yours to save. You haven't failed your way into nothing. He loves you, right? And some of you just need to practice the expression of that joy in ritual of song, and poetry, and let the thing work in repetition until your heart slowly comes back alive. And is fuller. Do whichever or all. God, I pray that you would help us in these moments to love you, and to not just love you, even more importantly, to accept your love, to know your love. That we would feel, one, not that it passes out of our understanding, but that it's so much it passes through and over our understanding. Help us to really receive it. I pray that for some people you'd you'd eke something open, you'd break it open, you'd show us what the next step is, that you'd help us. And help us to just take joy just in these songs. In Jesus' name, amen.